So the video says the power is in your hands. We're talking about prayer. We're continuing a sermon series on prayer, and uh, it's important. Uh, many people pray, even if they are from a different religion, or if they have claimed no religion, people are often praying. It's one of the most popular spiritual disciplines, we could say, for people around the world. But if you have sermon notes, I'd like you to pull those out. There's still some at the back on that uh, music stand by the entrance. If you want to just go walk there and get some, you can go on your phone to cornerstonealliance.info and follow along there in today's sermon notes as well. And I just want to open by um, asking a question, a true or false question. So, prayer changes things. Maybe you've seen that on t-shirts in a Christian bookstore or on a coffee mug. Prayer changes things. It's a common slogan. What do you think? Prayer changes things. True or false? True. I didn't actually meant for the out, but great. Okay. Um, what what really changes when you think about it? I mean, what does prayer do? What? How effective is prayer? Uh, for some people, it's it, it changes, um, it's kind of like a, it calms us. The, the effect is, is on me. And so it's kind of like, um, you know, take a nap. I meditate in prayer and I listen to God and it's, it's, it's very soothing and relaxing. So we say prayer changes us when we pray and we become more aligned with, with what God wants for our lives. And so prayer changes the prayer, like the person who is praying. They, um, they develop a deeper intimacy, a deeper relationship with God as they pray. Or, or even the people who are prayed for, they feel very encouraged and they feel loved because they know, oh, my church family is praying for me while well, I'm in the hospital and it lifts their spirits. So prayer changes us, doesn't it, as, as we pray? But is that all that prayer changes? When we look at the prayers, the people who pray in scripture, and we look at biblical prayers, we look at praying in the Bible, we see there's so much more than that. Prayer doesn't only change us. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes history. People in the Bible are praying as if their prayer actually matters. They pray not only to change themselves, not only to make the other person feel good, but they pray even to change God. God is in a loving relationship with us, and he responds to us. The people who pray in the Bible are praying as if they can actually change God's mind. They believe they could change God's mind. There's over 20 times in Scripture it says God changed his mind, God repented, or God relented. Relent, repent, or change his mind. It's the same word, same, same translation, or the same word in Hebrew is translated those ways, if you're reading King James Version, or the NIV, or the ESV, or the NRSV, and one of the scripture passages we'll look at today, the NIV says, um, God relented. The uh, NRSV would say, God um, repented. King James Version would say, God changed his mind. Over and over again. It happens a lot. And this is no threat to God's sovereignty. God has plans for this world. And God his, his plans will be accomplished. Nothing is going to thwart his plans. He has given us free will. 
Otherwise, we can't really be in a truly loving relationship because we're just forced like robots you know, to love, but we aren't. Things happen in our world today that aren't God's will, right? Murders, you know, adultery, things that are hurting other people, human trafficking, things with our creation and how we treat um, treat our, our natural resources. These aren't according to God's will. But because people like us have freedom to choose to obey God or to not, things happen sometimes outside of God's will. But you know what? In the end, God's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He, he is that amazing. He is so, so much bigger than we could ever imagine. I heard someone say, imagine how great God is. He's so much greater than that. He's greater than you can even imagine. So if you have two pictures of God and one, one picture of God makes God even greater, then you should go with the greater one. And so some people feel defeated in their prayer lives because they feel that every single little minute detail since the beginning of creation has been planned out ahead of time. Every step I take, every decision that we make, it was just planned by God to happen. And so I'm just following out this, this plan. It's as if, if I could do this, but I can't, if I could make a computer program for a chess game and I would plan all the chess moves ahead of time. You know, the white knight is going to go here first and the black pawn and go back and forth. And, and then it's going to look like one side's going to win, almost checkmate in the way they escape and then their pawn turns into a queen. But I know every single move. I know exactly how it's going to turn out. And then when it's all programmed, I just push start, but I watch it happen and I can just sit back. But as we look at the prayers in Scripture, and we'll look at a few of them today, we see that is not a picture of God that we see in Scripture. God is responding. God gives up some of He, he gives up some of His um, power to us. We are co-laborers with Him, and He wants us to ask for things. He gives us a certain amount of dominion and freedom. And so, the Scriptures say, "You don't have, you don't receive. Why? Because you don't ask." You don't ask God. And so he wants us to partner with him, to participate with him. God's big plans are not going to change. He is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. But I've told you before, my favorite story in the Bible is Joseph. And it goes on for so many chapters. And his brothers and, and people around his life, they, they planned all this stuff for evil. Right? They wanted to, to hurt him. But God uses that to accomplish something so much greater. And the moral of that story, one of them is like, whatever you plan for evil, God can take that and redeem it and make it good. So it doesn't matter what people do with their freedom, with their free wills. God, can, he can respond. He is so much greater than that. It, it won't matter. But because of that, we have this, this uh, agency when we pray. There's three specific passages. Two we'll look at today. And one uh, small group that meets them on the night. You can look at that one uh, for further study. But the biblical prayers, the people who pray, are convinced that when they're praying, things change. And it's not that, well, God had ordained and planned that I was going to pray for that. And then that's how he was going to do it, as if we're just following some blueprint model. No, they believed that God could change in some some certain, some details of our lives and prayer can change history. So some of you may feel you don't have a big motivation to pray because what's well, going to happen anyways. 
God's already planned it all out. So if I pray, if I don't pray, what's the big deal? I don't know if any of you give your children allowances or if you received allowance, but let's just pretend for a minute. Here's an illustration. Maybe every Friday. Okay, you give your children some money. And you're going to do it every Friday anyways. But your children think that you want them to ask for it. So every Friday after school, they come and they ask for it. And you give it to them. But they know that you're going to give it to them anyways, but they just think that that you want them to ask anyways. So they do and they get it. So some people think prayer is kind of like that. It's going to happen anyways, but I'm supposed to pray, so I just pray. But it's not really going to change anything. We don't really have much agency. Not really participating in God's plans for us, which is all set from the beginning. But let's look at a couple passages here in Scripture today. If you have your notes, look at the first one. In Exodus chapter 32. This is Moses. And he has gone up the mountain. He's talking with God. He's going to receive the Ten Commandments on stone. But he was kind of taking a long time. And the people, God's people, had just been rescued from slavery, from all those hundreds of years of, of just having an awful life in Egypt, I'm standing on the cords, I guess. And so he rescued them from slavery, brought them, and he's on his way to bring them to this promised land, and he wants to, de- to, to um, develop these relations. Here's how we're going to live in relationship with each other. So he brings Moses up the mountain, he's going to give them these Ten Commandments, and then the people are just, oh, this is taking forever. So do you remember what, what they did? It was really awful in God's sight. He says, when people saw, first chapter 32, verse 1, the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, and we don't know what happened to him. Maybe he died on the mountain. I don't know. Never go mountain climbing alone, right? That's probably a moral of the story here. No, it's not. And Aaron said, well, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So they all, you know, took off, they all brought, brought the gold and, um, and they made it into a cat, an, an idol in the shape of a calf. And then they said, here, these are your gods, these gold statues, you know, who brought you up out of Egypt. And then there's going to be this big festival. And so they're, they're having this big celebration to these, you know, gold statues that are their idols now. And so Moses up in the mountain, verse seven, and the Lord said to, said to Moses, go down because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick, so quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I'm sure that must have been, wouldn't have felt good, you know, for God. Verse nine, the Lord says, I have seen these people and they are stiff-necked people. So he says to Moses, he says, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Stop there for a second. God says to him, just leave me alone. I just want to be angry at these people. I'm going to destroy them. And then Moses, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Wow. Moses can be become somebody. He can be the father of a brand new 
nation who will glorify God and honor him and, and be obedient to God. That's what God's offering to Moses. I will start with you. He'd be like the new Noah all over again. And, and you know, if what would you have done? You know, this is God telling you this. Yeah, well, if God wants to use me to make a great nation, then hey, by all means, God, your, your will be done. If you, yeah, go for it. Who am I, you know, to speak against that? But Moses doesn't do that, even though some of us may have been tempted to go along with it. Moses doesn't, here's this word from the Lord, but Moses doesn't think, okay, this is the final word. What does he say? Verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people who have been brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out just to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. This is Moses talking to God. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore, you promised by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give you descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then, verse 14, says, Then the Lord relented, in the NIV version. Uh, the version that says, Then the Lord changed his mind. Or another version would say, Then the Lord repented, and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses gave three reasons. For God not to do, not to make Moses into a great nation. He said, look, don't forget um, the promises you made to Abraham and, and Isaac and Israel. You made promises to them. Don't forget that. I mean, God could have said, he could have rebutted all of Moses' arguments. He could, in this case, he could have said, well, Moses, you're a descendant of Abraham. So I'm, I'm, I'm still going to do that anyways. Like, I'm not really going against my promise. Moses said, but the Egyptians, you know, they're going to, they're going to think, well, you, this great God just brought them out of slavery just so they could die and you could kill them in the desert. And God could have said, well, I have a pretty good self-esteem. I don't really care what Egyptians think. You know, I'm God and I can do as I please. God could have rebutted every one of these things. He could have just said, you know, I am the Lord and I will do as I please. And this is what I want to do. And this is what I'm going to do it. Live with it. But he didn't. He relented from his plans. He repented. He changed his mind because of how Moses prayed. When we say repent, we're not saying uh, because he sinned, like we, we repent of our sins. God isn't sinning, but it's like a change of direction. I'm going this way, and I'm going to go this way. That's the core meaning of repent. So God changed his mind. God repented. I understand many people uh, will have problems with this idea that God will change according to prayers. Like we can affect on God. And, and so, you know, throughout the Bible, there's many times where God is described in ways that isn't really God. A fancy term is anthropomorphic. Can you kind of guess what that means? Like, we, we might assign God uh, certain characteristics of, uh, of a human physical body, like uh, the right hand of God is whatever, whatever. He doesn't physically or literally have a right hand, right? It's just, he is so much greater than us, we're trying to describe uh, in ways that people can understand what what it, what it means. Or we say that, you know, God has a face. I mean, he is a his spirit, right? So this, we give 
God, sometimes the, the writers of Scripture give God certain physical characteristics just so we can help us understand. It's a metaphor to create clarity. And so some people say every time in the Scriptures where it says God changes his mind or God repents or God relents, it's the same thing. He's not really changing his mind. It just appears like he is to us. And so, okay, that, that, I think that's legit to a certain certain degree. Um, there are two occasions uh, in Scripture where it says God doesn't change his mind, and over 20 where it says he does. In one of those cases, 1 Samuel 15, if you want to take those notes and write it down later, for, look at it later. 1 Samuel 15 says God is not like a human, so he doesn't change his mind. That's sandwiched, though, within two expressions where God will change his mind, and God will change his mind at the beginning and end of that story. So it might be discomforting for some people, but if you think about it, these anthropomorphisms, these metaphors, they're there to help us clearly understand. They're to bring clarity to who God is. And so if the scriptures are trying to say that God doesn't change his mind, why would they say God does change his mind? Like that's just so misleading. That just makes it harder to understand. It brings, it brings like murkiness. There should be clarity. So these metaphors, we talk about God having a right hand or having a face or whatever, whatever. It helps us to understand him better. But if this whole idea of God changing his mind is, is an answer, how does it help us? It just makes it harder, more confusing. And many people will say, you need to take the Bible literally unless there's good reason to not. And so if we take the Bible literally, in all these instances where God's changing his mind, he's literally changing his mind, unless we have good reason to believe otherwise. But even if you don't accept this, even if you can't believe that God changes his mind, you have to accept the fact that all the people who pray in the Bible believed they could. They were praying as if it mattered, as if some objective thing changes in the world and in history. Moses changed history right here through his prayer. He could have become the new Noah. And you know what? God still would have accomplished his purposes because God is so much greater than every evil thing or every evil tent or free will or whatever. He will make it happen. But he changed the course of history. Moses did. Let's look at another example. It's 2 Kings chapter 20. By this time in Israel's history, they have kings. And Hezekiah was a good king. And he just experienced great answer to prayer in defeating Sennacherib. You can read that if you read a few chapters before. So he's used to, to uh, praying and having his prayers answered. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Kings chapter 20 says, verse 1, In those days Hezekiah became ill, and he was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, this is the prophet, right, Isaiah, he's a true prophet. What he speaks is true. He, he's not a false prophet. God tells him what to say, and he tells the people. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. If you like the King James Version, Thus saith the Lord. This is God's word. This is it. Like, if God's never going to change his mind, he's not going to change his mind now. Like, this, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. This is the word of the Lord, from Isaiah to Hezekiah. Verse 3, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. He said, remember, 
Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Do you think his prayer changed anything? Before Isaiah could even get out of his palace, before Isaiah had left the middle court, it says, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, came to him, and he said, go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of the people, of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. You can see that in the scriptures, when people pray, they believe they can make change happen. Prayer does change us. It's very good for us to pray. Meditating on God's word is very good for us. It's good for us to take naps as we're reading the scripture. It's good for us to become more aligned with God's will. It's good for us to understand what God is saying through Scripture. It's good for us to pray. But God is not a God who has, since creation, pushed start and then backed away. He is involved every single second of our lives. And actually, he'd be dead right now if he wasn't, because he's sustaining you right now. He is involved. And so we can affect. We've been given agency through our prayers to make change happen. Uh, when I grew up, for a certain, I don't remember how long, I just had to block it out of my memory, it's such a bad memory. For so many years, we didn't have a TV. My brother was six grades ahead of me, and we had grade 13 in Ontario back then, so I don't know. But he was at grade 13 or grade 12, I don't know. The TV broke, and he told my parents, uh, please don't fix it, because I don't, I want to study. What about me, you know? In grade seven, like, who cares about studying in grade seven? So for many years, we didn't have a TV. And uh, so Rubik's Cube became my best friend for a little while. My, my children make fun of me for that. But also, my mom would leave books around uh, on the coffee table, you know, on the bedside table, and just here and there. And they're always, always missionary biographies. Uh, Hudson Taylor, or um, George Mueller, or um, Brushko, Bruce Olson, these different um, fantastic stories. And so I'm like, okay, nothing else to do, right? Because we didn't have internet. We have phones. I mean, the phone was like on a cord, and only one person, it was awful. Life is much better now. So, okay, I'll read these books, but I was just enthralled that these people, as they're writing their biographies, or someone else writing for them, it's like they, they prayed, and like things would happen. I'm like, how did you know that would happen? Somehow they, they, they just knew God really well. And they said, I, I'm going to pray. This one Japanese missionary, and you know, I talk a lot about Japan because it's close to my heart, and it's really tough there for Christians. But like, she she said, um, I want to pray for the worst person, you know, in this city. And there's a guy in the city who had the worst reputation for whatever, whatever evils you could think of. And um, and she felt God was asking her to pray for him, so she did. And then he shows up at her door. And he becomes a believer, and everyone's like, wow, this is amazing. And so a whole bunch of people became Christians. But like, how does he know? And it's hard for me to accept that that was just all planned, you know, ahead of time. Because then I feel, you know, this is just me, but I feel that my prayer doesn't really mean all that much. Like, it was just, I was just supposed to pray that anyways, and it happened. 
But I'm encouraged when I read the scriptures and I see they didn't think that way either. They, they act like it actually made a difference. In these missionary biographies, they were praying as if it actually made a difference. Like it changed something. And if God is a loving God, and he is, and there's some response to that. There's a certain risk that he might take in giving us some freedom. We can choose to obey or not obey. We can choose to pray or not to pray. But he's inviting us into his work. He's inviting us to be participants, to be co-workers. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.9. We are co-workers with God. And this is part of what it's like in Christian life. You know, Islam and, and Hindu and, and Buddhism and other, other religions is very fatalistic. It's just whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen. Christianity is not a fatalistic religion. We've been given agency by God, and prayer is the biggest way that we make changes. You know, ministry happens when we pray. I used to pray for the ministry. I used to pray for things, but I'm learning slowly, but I am learning. That's the wrong way to look at it. Stuff happens when I pray. Like, that is the ministry, not just to support the ministry. You know, you go to the ministry, and I'll pray to support you, but Sometimes you don't have to do anything. All I have to do is pray. And then something happens like, whoa, what a coincidence, right? Don't you find that coincidences happen more often when you pray? It's true. Try it out. So prayer literally changes things, according to uh, these people who are praying in the Bible. Albert Einstein, he was uh, at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Studies, and one of his graduate students asked him, you know, they, they wanted to write a dissertation, and the hardest part of writing a dissertation is just trying, what am I going to study? He said, what is there left in the world for original dissertation research? And Einstein replied, find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. I found online a book, um, letters to and from Albert Einstein. And one of the letters was from a Sunday school class dated January 19, uh, 1936, Riverside Church. And so they, had the, they were having a discussion in Sunday school, and they thought, let's write to Dr. Einstein. So they said, my dear Dr. Einstein, we have brought up the question, do scientists pray? Um, oh, sorry. We brought up the question, do scientists pray in our Sunday school class? It began by asking whether we could believe in both science and religion. We're writing to scientists and other important men to try and have our own question answered. We will feel greatly honored if you will answer our question. Do scientists pray, and what do they pray for? We are in the sixth grade, Miss Ellis's class, respectfully yours, Phyllis. Five days later, there's a response from Dr. Albert Einstein. January 24th, 1936, says, Dear Phyllis, I will attempt to reply to your question as simply as I can. Here's my answer. Scientists believe that every occurrence, including the affairs of human beings, is due to the laws of nature. Therefore, a scientist cannot be inclined to believe that the course of events can be influenced by prayer, that is, by a supernaturally manifested wish. However, we must concede that our actual knowledge of these forces is imperfect, so that in the end, the belief in the existence of a final, ultimate spirit rests on a kind of faith. Such belief remains widespread even within the current achievements in science. But also, 
everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that some spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, one that is vastly superior to that of man. In this way, the pursuit of science leads to a religious feeling of a special sort, which is surely quite different from the religiosity of someone more naive. With cordial greetings, Albert Einstein. Very interesting, isn't it? Does history change? Does things change? Does God actually respond when we pray? Or or is he just um, playing charades? You know, I'm just pretending that I'm you know responding to your prayer. Or does he actually reply or respond or change things in the course of history? There actually have been studies um, by scientists and psychologists and sociologists and, and whoever. Uh, many studies have been done on uh, prayer, scientific studies. One of the more popular ones was done in 1988 at the University of California, San Francisco Medical School by Randolph Bird. Uh, you can look it up later if you want. He did this study with 393 coronary patients. They had heart attacks or some sort of severe uh, symptoms with their heart. The interesting thing that I found out about the study was that the patients, neither the patients nor the medical staff, knew who was being prayed for and who wasn't being prayed for. It was completely, they called it double-blind study. So the patients didn't know if they were being prayed for or not, and the doctors and nurses, they didn't even know who was being prayed for. So of these 393 coronary care patients, of those being prayed for, the results showed that significantly fewer died, fewer required use of the most potent drugs, and not one had to be put on life support. There was a vast difference between those who were being prayed for and those who were not. Prayer changes things. In James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, You do not receive, because why? Because you don't ask. Do, do you think maybe that's why you don't have some things? Maybe that's why you haven't received? Because, oh, yeah, I forgot to ask. Maybe you believe that it's going to happen whether you pray or not. But how does that fit with James chapter 4, verse 2? It says, you don't, you don't receive because you don't pray. And then it says, when you do pray, um, well, you pray with wrong motives. But if God has ordained every single little decision minutely in our lives, then wouldn't he have us pray with the right motives so we would receive if we're going to pray? Like, it's just, it's just very confusing. Maybe we don't have because we haven't asked. You ever thought of that? James chapter 4, verse 2. You don't pray because you don't ask. Now, we can look at Moses. You know, Hezekiah and Elijah is someone we didn't look at today, but we could look at Elijah uh, was a man of God. You know, the three big ones, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus for people of, of Jewish uh, Judaism. And we say, well, Elijah, you know, he prayed, wouldn't rain. He slapped the rain for three years and he prayed and then it did rain. Like, that's pretty incredible. But in James chapter 5, it's very, he says, it's, it's, he was, knew probably what I was thinking. He says, Elijah was just a mere man, just like us. I think I have it in your notes. Let me not quote the word of God wrong. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He wasn't a special person. He was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain rain in the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. Let me ask you today. Is there something 
that you feel maybe, perhaps, you don't have because you're not asking? Is there something, maybe, that God would just love to shower you with this gift, would love to give you this? Just wait, just please ask. I'm right here, like, just ask. It's in my pocket. I'll just give it to you. Maybe there's something that God is just wanting you to ask for. Have you ever thought of that? I can't answer that for you, but what do you not have? Because you're not asking God. Luke chapter 18, verses 35 to 42. There's this awesome story. I'm going to close with this. Jesus is approaching Jericho, Luke chapter 18, verse 35. And there's a blind man sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. He couldn't see, right? So, hey, what's happening? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him, right? Told him to be quiet. Shut up. You're being a nuisance. Quiet. But what did he do? He shouted even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him this question. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, They also praised God. Let me ask you this question. Just imagine with me that Jesus is here. You don't have to imagine. It's for real. Jesus is here. What if he were to ask you that question today? Same question that he asked the blind man. What do you want me to do for you? Is there something? that you would like Jesus to do for you? What would you say? You don't have to say it out loud. Just think about that. Jesus is here. The all-powerful, all-knowing, merciful, compassionate God who created you and everything you see, you see like, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? Have you ever asked him? that? Maybe you have asked and you gave up. Maybe you gave up too soon. Earlier in Luke chapter 18, one of the passages you look at in your life groups on Monday is uh, talking about being persistent. Sometimes we give up too soon. So what is it? You know, prayer changes things. There's all sorts of things about prayer. Prayer isn't only asking. You know, it isn't only giving a request to God. It's also praising and, and giving thanks. But today, we're focusing on really the core of prayer is asking. What is it? You can only answer that for yourself. But what if Jesus were to ask you that question? Hypothetically. But not hypothetically. What do you want me to do for you? Will you ask him for that? 
we'll just have a moment of silence as the music team comes on up and just take a time to pray and just take ask sometimes you don't have because you never asked so let's just pray silently as the music team comes come on up and ask God. Thank you.